0: You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told on September 10th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was On the Water. Music was performed by Travis Smith.
1: And me
2: and my a paper bird.
3: Liz Villanueva. A product of Juno, she now raises her two daughters, Kiana and Janie, with her best friend Dan. Snowboarding, soccer, and chilling with family and friends builds memories she's afraid to forget. Teaching middle school language arts and social studies allows her to be forever young. This real McCoy is hardly fancy, but dreaming to write and writing to dream have always been a part of who Liz fancies she is. Now if she could only find where she put that pen, please welcome Liz to the stage. To
4: start off, I'd like to say choosing which night I would tell the story at was not difficult for me because when I turned 40, I said, I am going to perform before I am 41. That happens on Saturday. (laughs) Knowing what I would say for this theme took a lot more thought. And figuring I've grown up in Juneau, you would think I'd have a whole lot to say about on the water. Really, what it comes down to, I would rather be on the water than in the water. I dislike the rain, I detest wet socks, but for the most part, I have never understood that tranquility, the complete calm, the image of the baby on the Nirvana cover. (laughs) It doesn't work for me, because when I was six, I just about drowned, and. I remember swallowing water. I remember tasting water, breathing it, and thinking, this should not be happening. Why is that man in the chair still? Does he see me? And then all of a sudden, where did he go? And he's lifting me up by my swimsuit. All I could think as this lifeguard was saving me is, why didn't you save me earlier? (laughs) So, again, as I contemplated the theme, it was odd to find myself in Fairbanks with my on-the-water story. A year ago, for the summer solstice, my family went to Fairbanks to pretty much have a family reunion and we were lucky enough to be there for the summer sun. The sun was in the sky all night long, all day long. It was hot because it gets hot in some places in Alaska. And We decided on the 23rd, the way that we would celebrate my daughter's birthday was to go to the lake. Fairbanks doesn't really have lakes. It was more of a gravel pit. And luckily though, I was with my sister who grew up in Juneau also, and so she knows all about having good times on the water. They had a 20-person inner tube with a trampoline in the middle. They had life jackets for every kid, and we had a few kids because we like to produce and reproduce and other things that go along with that. And so we were chilling by the water, by the lake in the sun. It was about 11 o'clock. We had a great spot, ragtag campsite, and we were the only ones for about a half hour before another family set up about 200 yards down the beach. And so again, we were sitting, listening to music. We had been staying up pretty late because the sun never goes down. And so uh, Led Zeppelin, I remember, was playing. And it doesn't matter what song Led Zeppelin song is on, there's always a lesson. You can always draw something out of it and relate to it. So we adults were hanging out and the kids were enjoying the water And all of a sudden, the people to the uh, other campsite, they started screaming for help. Help! Help! And every adult, every male, there were five men. They all jumped up and ran as fast as they could to that screaming. My sister, Catherine, who is older than me, She used to be able to do the butterfly as a senior. She also ran out as fast as she could. My other sister's husband got on one of those jet runners, and he waved out and made splashes, but he was right there. We were the only people responding. I responded by making sure the children were okay, (laughs) put my hand on my hip, made sure my glasses were posed, not because I wanted to look good, but because I did not know what else to do. And as we watched, as they responded, we went through every emotion there was to go through. We had started feeling lucky. We had started feeling hot and tired, but knowing we were going to have a good day. And in a second, everything changed. They dove. They looked. The man died, we came back, and the adults did not know what to do. We were angry, we were scared, we were helpless. And so, we had a birthday party. And I thought, how fitting is this, that we are celebrating Kayana's birthday. She was born in the water. She was that nirvana baby. Just like the day that I gave birth to her, we didn't know what to do, we didn't know what to expect. We weren't in control. But every single person acted and did what they could. And then, we kept the children safe. What I take from that day So I would always rather be on the water than in the water. But truly, light, the cycle of water, the water cycle, life is a cycle too. And when I look out at the water, really what I think is no regrets.
1: There are no regrets
4: and there are no regrets.
5: Our next speaker tonight is Phil Merrill. He's a school counselor at Thunder Mountain High School and also the worship pastor at Crossroads Church. His first exposure to Juno was driving tour buses through the summer while in college at Western Washington University. He also had the opportunity to work this summer commercial fishing in Bristol Bay. He's looking forward to sharing with you and hopes to see you sometime at the Rock Dump, Island Pub, Waffle Company, or Crossroads. Please, welcome to the stage, Phil Merrill.
2: When I was 23 years old, I had the opportunity to walk the Camino de Santiago, which translates into the Way of St. James in Spain. Legend has it that the Apostle James is buried in a city called Santiago de Compostela on the western edge of Spain and for centuries people have been making this pilgrimage across the country to pay their respects. Uh, Modern times people come from all over the world for a variety of different reasons to Santiago. There's a numerous different ways to go. I picked the Camino Norte which follows the northern coast of Spain. It's not exactly like you can find a guidebook for the Camino de Santiago here in the U.S. So I went by myself, just a 30-liter backpack and some Google image memory maps that I had brought. Now I remember my second day of walking, actually before I get there. The way is marked with these flechas amarillas, which if you speak Spanish means yellow arrows. So everywhere along the trail, spray-painted on trees, rocks, um, written on signposts embedded in the sidewalk are these arrows and that is how you follow the way of st james so i didn't need a map so my second day of walking i would planned to take forty days in spain i stopped at a little cafe and i remember talking to the waiter and he was telling me when you get to a certain point you need to stay to the right at least i think that's what he was saying i mitered in spanish i didn't major in spanish and that might have made a difference Um, But sure enough, as I was walking, I got to a fork in the road, and the Flecha Samarias veered off to the left, I think. It was vague enough that there was also a path to the right. And I said, ah, you know, adventure, let's go right. So I started walking. And you know that feeling you get when you're going on a trail, and it starts getting worse and worse, and you're like, well, I've gone this far already, it doesn't make sense to turn around. Yeah, I kept doing that until I got to the edge of the trail, and I was, like, at the ocean and on a jetty and I could see a little town a little neighborhood across this inlet of water to my left and I knew that's where I had to be and I'd already walked a couple hours I didn't want to backtrack so I decided I need to cross it looked about waist-deep wasn't too far far enough so I rolled up my well actually you had the convertible pants you know the shorts the pants I took off my socks and my shoes I grabbed my backpack and I started to walk and as soon as I took a step I felt this pain in my feet. And I looked down, and sure enough, the water around my feet was red. So I kept going, I made, it <laughs> I made it to the other side, and I found a park bench, thankfully really close to the other edge of the water. I sat down, and I examined the damage. Sure enough, slices and cuts all the way up and down my feet on my second day. I I saw a woman passing by I said, Donde esta el Camino de Santiago? Where's the Camino de Santiago? She looks at me, she said, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) So here I am, I'm sitting on this park bench. I am alone, I have no map, I have no guide, I've ruined my only mode of transportation and it was only day two of 40 And I'm frustrated. I'm mad at God. I'm mad at myself. I'm mad at the world. What am I going to do? I don't know where the Flecha Amarillas are. I'm lost. But what do you do? You just, you have to keep going. There was no one in that moment that was going to bail me out. So I put my socks on, put my shoes on. I started walking. Made it through the neighborhood, made it onto the highway. Just kept walking and walking, each step hurting more and more than the last made it onto the highway, and the highway started to crest this hill, and up in the edge I saw a sign, a little flicker of hope. You know what I saw? I saw Flecha Amarilla, and I was like, okay, okay, I, I, I can do this. I kept walking to the top of the hill, and as soon as I crested it, I could see the unmistakable beach of Laredo, which is a resort city in northern Spain. It's a five-kilometer-long peninsula beach, and I knew that's where I needed to stay that night. So I made it down there. I found the special hostel that only pilgrims walking the Camino can stay at. It's called an albergue. And it was actually the site of an old monastery, or a monja, where nuns lived. I get shown to a room, and there are two queen-sized beds. And there's a gentleman there already, this middle-aged, balding Spaniard. And here I am. I'm just thankful to be alive, thankful to be in this room. I made it. And a few short words later, this complete stranger takes me to an internet cafe so I can email my friends and family. He buys me a steak dinner, and he proceeds to take a first aid kit and wraps my feet. I'd never met this man before. But at the time, it was a special event. It was just so humbling that this Spanish Native stranger to me would care enough about me to take care of my feet and wrap them and I knew at that point. Okay, I can do this I knew at that point I could go on that night My feet were were patched up and I was gonna walk with this guy I had a walking partner for the rest of my journey and that night we fell asleep to the sound of nuns singing in this monastery and I like I said I just knew that I was gonna be okay on my Camino de Santiago on the water. Thank you.
3: Chip McMillan's our next speaker. Chip was born and raised in Colorado. He spent a total of 23 years in Alaska, nine of them in Juneau. Chip worked as a math and science teacher in various places in Alaska and the lower 48. Currently, he's an associate professor at UAS here in Juneau. Please help me welcome Chip to the stage.
6: So, the title of my story is, Chip Saves the Day. <laughs> uh, for you to appreciate my story, you need to understand the depth of my fear of big, raging, roaring rivers. And so, the Mississippi doesn't qualify, but uh, our own uh, Mendenhall River, during uh, a Yeah, that scares the bejesus out of me, and and always has, that type of water. So when my father, when I was about 14, announced that we were going on a raft trip down the Yampa and Green Rivers in uh, northwest Colorado, northeast Utah, I was very unhappy. Um, My mother and my sister immediately declined to go on this trip, But my younger brothers, who don't know anything about anything, were enthused about a raft trip. And I therefore had no choice but to go on this trip. So this trip was uh, three days with Hatch River expeditions. Uh, There were 12 rafts. My raft, uh, with my father and my two brothers, uh, was 36 feet long. Uh, Weighed about 600 pounds, just the rubber, alone. And when we put the 14 people and all of our gear on this raft, I'd say it weighed 3 or 4,000 pounds. So, on um, the day we departed, I'd say about 10 minutes into the raft trip, Chuck, our raft guide, shared with us that it was his very first trip. (laughs) Now, Everyone on my raft seemed to think that was really special. (laughs) And weren't we lucky to be his very first patients, I mean passengers. Um, I was horrified. Uh, I was still reeling from this revelation when we hit our first rapid, teepee, teepee rapid. And uh, teepee rapid includes uh, a big hole um, and that's when it's like a roller coaster. You go shooting down uh, one end and come out the other end. And even at 36 feet, we were basically swallowed by this hole. So um, Chuck loses an oar at the bottom of the, uh, the hole here. He, uh, he, he quickly recovered a spare oar and put it on, and he rode a few strokes. But then he decided he should stop a raft Behind us to get another spare because we were the only raft of the 12 that had Only one spare Everybody else had two and now we had none So he rowed to shore and he jumped off the raft onto shore. I believe his intent was to lasso something and uh, You know flag down a raft behind us for another oar uh... it was a noble gesture but um... the problem was the the bank was very steep and uh... consisted entirely of gigantic boulders so um, it was impossible really uh, again his effort was heroic he was being dragged across boulders bleeding fingers and so on but uh... he let go i mean what are you gonna do so he let go and um, so we took off without him Hey, I only got seven minutes, okay? Um, and I'm down to four. So, um, so my brothers immediately yell out, We lost our raft guide! You know, like we had just scored a touchdown or something. So obviously I didn't share their enthusiasm for that situation. Um, and I, like ten seconds after losing Chuck, we all see this tree, this huge tree, directly in front of us about 60 yards downstream. It's perfectly horizontal, and it's exactly high enough to skim the top of the raft, but it's not high enough to skim heads or anything else that might be above the raft. So my dad is right behind me, and he's sitting on the upturned part at the very stern of the raft, you know? And he goes, get down, get down, everyone! It's really obvious, but thanks, Dad, for uh, alerting us to this danger. So we all jump down into the bottom of the raft, and I remember this trunk, like, screeching across the rubber of the raft right over my head. I turn around and see the trunk hit my father square in the chest, and it sweeps him right off the raft. And my brothers are like, we lost our dad. Like, sweet, we, now we got a home run. And so the, the thing is, I didn't really care so much about my dad, but it was the raft guide I still had a problem with not having a raft guide on this raft. So I look back and I see my dad and he's about 20 feet out over the river and he's holding on to the tree like this. And he's got this most memorable expression on his face. I'll never ever forget that. Uh, Because he was of course the one who alerted us to the danger of the tree and he was the, the only one who did not get down into the raft. So at this point, Don and Parker, the two remaining adult males on the trip, jump up onto the platform to save the women and children. And uh, they start flailing at the water, like totally ineffectually, you know, making no direction, nothing. And they do that for about 40 seconds, and then Parker jumps off the platform, comes to the back of the raft where I am, grabs a line and does his beautiful swan dive off the back of the raft. The, The problem is that he gets his left foot caught in one of the lines that goes around the raft, and he ends up with his head and torso dragging in the water behind the raft. Now, his wife, I can't remember her name, goes, Parker, Parker, he's drowning he probably was but anyway so he's he's drowning and um, so I'm I'm the closest person to him so I reach over and I grab the only thing I can get a grip on which are his swim trunks and I I gave a really big tug you know to pull him in but I was I was not successful pulling him in I was successful however in pulling his swim trunks up to his calves and I believe I, I'm convinced, actually, that that's what saved him. I think, I think the combination of drowning and uh, the public embarrassment, you know, uh, gave him the strength of ten men plus two. So he, he pulls himself in, and he collapses in the bottom of the raft. He can't even pull his swim trunks up. And then the most dreaded sound I had ever heard, It started in low, and it started to grow. Chip, Chip, it's up to you. You have to save us. And I was in a complete hysteria. Um, I jumped off the raft. I landed in the water, and I ended up on shore, like at about two feet of water. And um, my first thought was, I'm saved. I'm going to live! My second thought was, well, what about these guys? And my third thought was, well, screw them! They should have known better. This was ridiculous. This whole idea is insane of going down a roaring, rushing, deadly river. But then my next thought was, well, what if one of them lives? And they, they survive, and they tell the tale of how you didn't do anything to save them. And so... I took this rope and I wrapped it around this completely dead bush that wouldn't hold anything. But miracle of miracles, the raft stopped right there. And everyone in the raft began leaping like they were on some giant um, trampoline or something and they were yelling, Chip, you saved us! You saved us! Even my brothers were yelling this. And you... Many of you have probably already guessed what happened. Uh, we hit an eddy. You know what an eddy is, right? And, and the raft would have stopped right there even if I had been just laying in the bottom of the raft weeping the entire time would have stopped. And so I guess this is like, this is a catharsis for me because this is the first time I have confessed publicly that I had nothing to do with saving that raft and i feel so much better thank you
5: so our last speaker before the intermission is rebecca braun rebecca came to juno 20 years ago for a summer job and has since made alaska home she has passed the time as a biologist teacher journalist and most recently as an underemployed cancer patient. She is, or hopes to be again, an avid runner, hiker, and skier. She especially loves the outdoor adventures with her children, Rosie, age 12, and Alder, age 6. She is grateful to the community of Juneau for providing so much love and support.
7: So I was thinking about actually telling a story about the time I drove someone's yacht into an iceberg. But instead, I was going to tell you a story that starts last June, 2013. Remember when we had summer? So it was hot enough that I was lying in bed in a tank top one night. It was so unheard of, but I think it saved my life. Because I flung my arm like this and found a lump. I was like, oh, that's weird. Eh, I suppose I should have a doctor check it out, thinking nothing. In fact, it was a knot of cancerous lymph nodes and uh, the harbinger of stage 3 breast cancer. Needless to say, My life quickly turned upside down, and with the help of a bunch of friends, since I really was feeling totally overwhelmed, I executed a quick move to the Seattle area for treatment. So we moved to Bainbridge Island, which actually turns out to be less of an island than Juneau. You can drive off this island to the north onto the Olympic Peninsula, or from the south, you can take a 35-minute ferry ride to the heart of downtown Seattle, every 50 minutes between 4.45 a.m. and like 1.10 a.m. So I was like, pshaw, you guys, this is no island. That said, my treatment began with chemotherapy. Uh, my typical chemo day began on the second floor of my cancer institute. And after the inevitable and to my mind, just completely unforgivable and inexplicably long wait, I'd be called back and a nurse would access my port. That's short for porticathis sort of like a titanium button that they placed under the skin right here. The outside was kind of like a rubber pin cushion, and on the inside it was attached to a catheter that would access my superior vena cava for maximum efficiency of delivery of the poison throughout my body. <clears throat> so when it's time to you know, get my, my dose of poison, the nurse would punch through my skin you know, with a needle and hoses like this, then draw some blood. They had to test my blood and make sure I had enough white blood cells and red blood cells left to withstand another assault because chemo drugs like to kill any fast growing cells, which includes your white blood cells and your red blood cells. And so each time I found that yes, my blood levels were very low, but not low enough that I couldn't have chemo. So woohoo, I would do a little inner ironic cheer. I get more poison. So next, I'd go upstairs to the fifth floor, where my medical oncologist was, and I always took the stairs, just like I do in the Capitol building, only I had to pull my hand into my sleeve for the doorknobs, because I'm not supposed to touch any germs due to my not having, like, no immune system. On the fifth floor, I would wait again, and then a nurse would finally get me. She'd take my vitals and read me a list of questions. What's your pain level? Any nausea or dizziness? Any mouth sores? fatigue. And then my personal favorite, have you slipped or fallen this week? There's nothing like a visit to the oncology nurse to make you feel like a geriatric. And after another wait, I'd have a similar chat with my oncologist and I'd pepper her with any questions I managed to dream up since the previous week. I'd ask her about supplements, I'd ask her about my schedule, I'd ask her about some study I read in France about linking circadian rhythms with chemotherapy. Finally I'm given a yellow slip of paper that literally says good to go in capital letters on it And I take that yellow slip of paper to the third floor the infusion floor and wave it at the people at the desk Who would nod to me and I would sit down to I'm sure you can guess wait Along with a very sorry group of humans We sit and stare at the fish in the aquarium as we wait or we try to get a piece into one of the impossible jigsaw puzzles We have rubber hoses sticking out of our clothes, bandages on our hands, caps on our heads. Some of us lean on canes or walkers or our companions. Some smile and compliment each other's headwear, maybe even knit or flip through a magazine. It's a peaceful scene. Somehow when one's faced with potential life-ending disease, the hurry fades. I had three chemo drugs, adriamycin and cytoxin were administered together first, and then two months of Taxol. Adriamycin is this bright red liquid I would call poison Kool-Aid, and it was so toxic that it can't get on your skin. I guess it'll just eat up your, your skin tissue. So the nurse would have to actually inject it herself after putting on gloves, a mask, and in one case, buttoning up her lab coat to the top. It was really comforting. But before they put the chemo down the chute, They have to throw down a bunch of stuff meant to help you survive the chemo. Decadron, Pepsid, Zofran, Benadryl. All this tends to make me a little loopy, and I'm probably pretty entertaining for my chemo buddy when I'm not dozing off. For each chemo visit, I have a buddy. For several, it was my boyfriend, Brian. Friends from Juno joined me for the others. My chemo buddy keeps me company through the wait, distracts me from the perturbing scene of the inbound poison runs out to get my favorite quinoa from the cart across the street. And when I'm getting taxol, my chemo buddy is my ice assistant. I iced my fingers and toes to try to prevent neuropathy. And most of all, my chemo buddy made it a party, a party celebrating the ironies of cancer treatment, friendship, love, my will to live. I couldn't have done it without my chemo buddy. When it's all over, some seven, eight hours after it started, a nurse removes the the gear from my port, and I walk 12, 13 blocks down to the ferry and return to Bainbridge. My mom once asked me, how long is that trip, thinking it must be so onerous. When I figured it out, it's probably about an hour and a half altogether, but there was nothing onerous about it. In fact, I quite enjoyed the rides on the ferry. I had occasional conversations on the boat, particularly while waiting to disembark when everybody gets squeezed before you go over the gangplank. I like your hat is how these conversations usually began. Thank you, I'd say. Are you in treatment? They'd ask, gently. Once after that hat entree, a woman told me that she too had had breast cancer. Now she said she has a bad heart, the chemo drugs ruined her heart, and she has a brain tumor. Good luck, we said to each other as we parted three seconds later. Another time, after the same hat business, I said, just tell me your cancer story. A man told me about his 15-year-old daughter's leukemia, and he told me how difficult the treatment was and how brave she was. And I said, he shook his head, backing off, suddenly realizing this wasn't the time for me to hear cancer failure stories. I'm sorry, I said as we walked off. But most of all, I really didn't talk to people on the ferry and I really liked how the ferry brought people together in this kind of peaceful way, not like in a car where you're in your own cell locked in unspoken combat with everybody in their own cells. On the ferry, I mostly didn't talk to people, I didn't do much of anything, I sat there staring out the window, lying down on the long padded benches, just vegging out. I never even saw an orca, they're supposed to be all over Puget Sound. But these ferry rides were vital to my treatment. I guess it's kind of like sleep. It feels like nothing's happening, but apparently that's when our brain does all the work. The ferry was my portal between worlds. In the morning, I was a mom waving to my son as he boarded the school bus for kindergarten. Crossing the water, I entered a sick zone. I became a cancer patient. And on the return journey, I was cleansed of sickness, returned to an island of healing. On the water crossing over, I found the peace and serenity I needed to redefine myself as whole, healthy, human healing. Thinking back, I realize we all need these empty spaces in our lives, the rest that makes the music's rhythm, the aloneness that makes connection possible, the ebb that makes the flow. So I'm thankful for lots of things, among them the Washington State Ferry. Thank you.
2: A
0: You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News, Juno. These stories were recorded on September 10th, 2014 at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was On the Water. Curious? Visit www.mudrooms.org. Just one pair of clean socks Our next
3: speaker you might recognize as former Juneau Assemblyman and Mayor and as your current Senator representing the capital city in the state legislature. Dennis Egan grew up in Juneau, graduating from JDHS in 1965. Dennis loves all things radio. He was named Alaska Broadcaster of the Year in 1990 and inducted into the Broadcasters Hall of Fame in 2001. Dennis and his wife, Linda, live on Douglas Island and have two daughters and four granddaughters. Please help me welcome Dennis to the stage.
8: Uh, when I was in high school, I had a recording studio in a place I used to live, and I recorded what's called the Ice Block delegation. And that was before internet, and I would record them and send their tapes to KNOM and radio station KDLG and Dillingham and other public stations that were just coming on the air at that time. And I became friends with a representative from Dillingham called Joe McGill. And his son decided that he didn't like to fish anymore. So he said, would you like to be my deckhand? I said, well, sure, because I was a box boy at Foodland at the time making a dollar and a quarter an hour. And I jumped at the chance. So I flew to Dillingham, and his boat was at South Nack He fished for CRPA, Columbia River Packers, which is now Bumblebee Seafoods, at South Nack And we went on strike. <laughs> so all Joe did, Joe McGill, was gripe about all these people, these scabs, from Monterey, California they were stealing our salmon and they were going to fish for a lower price. Well, a few of the Alaskans uh, knew how to use an anchor and drive it across gill nets. So anyway, we spent a lot of time uh, going to Igigik and Leavelok and went up uh, close to Lake Eliamna and just goofing off because we didn't have anything to do because we were on strike. So the season ended and I barely had enough money to afford a plane fare home. I thought this is a bad idea, but I got an offer from Columbia River Packers to be a deckhand on a power scow. So I readily accepted and when poundage was low, the deckhands and the power scow operators didn't make that much money. But if the haul was high, you made an awful lot of money. So I went to South Neck, Neck the next year as a deckhand on the Power Scow Beaver. It was an 87-foot power scow, and I had a great year. The the fish were incredible. One one of the folks was from Southeast Alaska, Ray Paddock, and he had a, a permit, and it was based in Kluak. And we were counting fish so much that I had actually fallen asleep with my fish counter. And I just fell asleep, and the counter was still going. And Ray went in and had breakfast and came out and said, this is how many fish I gave him. And, and he even brailled them for me. But he was, he was a great guy, and they were all very honest, and I made a lot of money in, in my junior year. So I readily signed on for my senior year. And the poundage was incredible. I mean, we were working 14 sevens and, and uh, we had 24-hour openings and we were, you know, working 24, 36 hours. And here I am, 17 years old, and we're making all kinds of money. I paid for my brand spanking new Plymouth Satellite. I paid for my first year at Oregon Tech, all because of sockeyes in Bristol Bay. But there was a problem. The skipper got mad at the chief engineer by last year and decided to fire him. Well, they made me at 17 chief engineer <laughs> of, of the beaver, and they gave me a, a raise. So we're packing canned salmon that had been canned at South Naknek to the China, which you may remember was the Alaska steamship that hit the dock in Valdez during the earthquake and ended up killing 31 people at the Valdez Dock. But the Chena survived and retired her in 1971. However, the Chena was uh, loading salmon from Bristol Bay that they were taking south to Portland. And the captain offered us ice cream. Well, I've been in Bristol Bay for 90 days now, and I I forgot what ice cream tasted like. So, but, but we, were, we had so many cans on our power scow that we were really low in the water. Well, the cans came off, but we were still low in the water. So the skipper, Sig Sandvik, said, you're the engineer. Go down to the engine room and make sure that bilge pumps are, are working. We had twin 671 Jimmies on the scow. So like an idiot, I go down there and the belt's not turning on one of the bilge pumps. And these are good-sized diesel engines. So what do I do? Because I'm thinking about the ice cream. So I grabbed the belt, and I cut two fingers off. I cut my ring finger on my right hand and my middle finger on my right hand, and they medevac me to anchorage. Well, there were no nurses at South Naknek. So what do they do? They wrap me in gauze, they put the, my fingers on ice, and medevac me to Anchorage. And how did they do for pain reliever? Vodka. <laughs> well, Dr. Mills, who treated frostbite patients uh, that climbed Mount McKinley at the time, did a tremendous job, and I have two fingers that don't really do anything, but and he put a fake fingernail on this finger, and I spent six months in a cast getting circulation back, my, but now I have fingers. And... Uh, Sorry, that's my story of Bristol (laughs) Bay.
5: Now we have Michael Patterson. Michael Patterson was born and raised in Juneau. He has created both a national TV and a radio commercial with the Center for Disease Control to bring awareness to COPD, or Chronic Obstructed Pulmonary Disease. In the radio commercial, he is known as Ghost Walker. He is Tlingit Raven Coho from Hid Whale House, and his native name is Heen Ya, which means packs water to the people. Please welcome Michael.
1: Well, this adventure started for me a little while back um, I was a lifetime smoker, unfortunately, and uh, I came to a point one morning where I was suffocating to death. Um, I had trapped air in my lungs, I couldn't get it loose, um, I spent four hours suffocating, and I spent ten days in the hospital after that being shot up with a Pregnizone steroid so I didn't get a sleep for ten days, but I, I had a lot of time to think. and. What I discovered there was that I couldn't imagine another living being ever having to find out what that was like. The level of terror was so intense that it turned me into a non-smoker. I left that hospital a non-smoker. I've never taken another hit.
7: <laughs>
1: but you know, uh, the doctor was telling me that uh, if I was one of the lucky few, I might have five years left to live, you know, and what do you do with that? I mean, you either go stay drunk, or you get so stoned that you don't have to face that, or you decide that you want to do something, and I decided I wanted to do something, you know, and um, I remember asking God to just use me like Samson, standing between the two pillars, and I wasn't sure what I was asking for, but um. I knew I wanted to speak to every child in Juneau, Alaska, through the schools, through radio, through TV. Um, I had a real burden in my heart to do this, you know, and somebody sent me a link from CDC. They were looking for a spokesperson to represent COPD, and they were going to give them $2,500 and a first-class round-trip ticket to New York City, and you get a ride around limousines and... Stay in the finest hotel, was like $379 a night. You know, and um, you would think that I would jump right on that. I didn't. I looked at that link for four months. I couldn't do it. Um, I kept thinking I don't want to set myself up for this kind of disappointment, this kind of pain, because I know that the moment I began to fill out that application, I'm going to want it so desperately bad that if I don't get it, it's going to kill me. And um, I hear this still small voice. You know, some people might call it intuition. I choose to call it the voice of God speaking to me. And um, after four months of not filling out this application, I heard him speak real clearly to me, and he said, you just need to fill this out. And so just for the sake of peace of mind, I filled it out and said, there, it's done. And the next thing, they're firing questions. And I'm on my way to New York City to make this nationwide commercial. And they ran a whole entire city block, you know, which was unreal. And um, they got 71 people hovering over me from makeup to food to wardrobe to everything you can imagine, you know, and, and the whole time they were asking me, um, are you okay? Um, we could take a break. And I just said, no, we need to get through this. You know, and as as a result, I don't know if many of you have seen the commercial, it punches really hard. You can feel it. Um, it just, first time I saw it, I cried for five minutes with that uncontrollably sitting in an uh, X-ray room down in University of Washington Medical Center with the room packed full of people staring at me. And um, when I looked up... <laughs> They are all looking at me like, dude, what's happening? Well, little did I know that, you know, I was down there doing the most powerful thing that I was ever gonna do in my life. And um, little did I know that I was about to meet the most powerful storm ever to hit New York City in my lifetime. You know, and um, I remember getting in the hotel, and, and I saw three signs across the street, and I thought, why do they got three posts with three signs? Why don't they put one post and put three signs on that post? <laughs> you know, it, it didn't make sense to me. i, I, I do not not too sure why I focused on that. And the other thing was, <laughs> I saw them, uh, you know, there was grates where the um, subways are, and all the air comes up out of there. And, they were taking plyboards boards and they were bolting them down and covering all of those. And I was like, wow, I wonder what that's about. And I found out that there was a storm called Hurricane Sandy coming in. Um, I paid attention to it and I thought, wow, I've been in a winds of 110 miles an hour. That can't be anything, you know, and um, it got downgraded to a category five or a category one. And so I went down to the waterfront and I was taking pictures of the tidal surge and um when i left the hotel i didn't know that it had collided with a cold front and it turned into a category five monster and it was rushing in on me faster and i was on the waterfront and i had been down there earlier that day the tide was kind of overcoming things while i went down i noticed that it was much lower and i kind of thought wow is that kind of like a tidal wave the water goes out before it comes in and i didn't really know but uh I hear this still, small voice again, he says, go back to your hotel room. And I didn't want to do it because I wanted to go just a little further down and get pictures of the helicopter pad. And that's, I remember saying that, I want to go get these pictures. And at, when I said that, every hair on my body stood on end. It was an unnatural feeling. And so I decided I'd better go back to my hotel room. And, so I, I get back there and I'm talking to the gals at the desk about my little adventure down there and I hear the four bellhops yell, here it is. And it takes four of them to push one door shut and the manager locks it and they push the other door shut and lock it. And and I'm thinking, well, I don't want to ride out this hurricane in here. I want to go across the street. So I told the manager I wanted to go across the street and he said, I'm sorry, sir, I cannot let you out. And I said, are you telling me I'm a prisoner? And he said... No, sir, but if I let you out, I don't think I can let you back in. And I heard that still small voice again. He said, go up to your room and look out the window. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, but if it doesn't look that bad, then I'm going across the street. They can't stop me. And I get up, and I look out my window, and here's those three weird signs across the street. And I see them, and they're bending this way and this way, and they're turning forwards and backwards. And they're doing it so fast that the posts look like they're made of rubber, and all three signs are doing a different dance. And I remember looking at that and thinking, that's not possible, that's just not possible. And I understood visually that I was about to step into a 90 mile an hour blender, and there's no way that I could have survived that. Um, What I learned is that although he speaks in a still small voice, there is no sound that can drown him out. And there is no amount of confusion that can take away from the clarity of what he's telling you. And I feel safe that I'm walking in his hands. And and, and I feel honored to be able to not only speak to Juno and the youth, young and old alike, but he's allowed me to speak to an entire nation. And I'm eternally grateful for that. Thanks.
3: Okay, our next speaker is Giselle Stone. One year ago today, Giselle was sailing across the Alaska-Canada border. It was cruising heaven, but not all of her sailing journey from Juneau to Mexico was quite as serene. Foul weather off the coast of California would stall the little 34-foot boat for days out at sea. Here to spin a yarn for you is a slightly salty sailor who always wears her life jacket but rarely shoes. Giselle Stone. Thank you, Alina. Um,
9: I have never loved concrete more than uh, the moment that our little sailboat sound discovery reached Bodega Bay, just slightly north of San Francisco, um, also the home of my boyfriend's parents. And um, our little boat slid into the slip at about 11 PM at night in dense fog after uh, Cliff, my boyfriend, and our friend Dave had spent about four days out at sea duck right off Cape Mendocino in 35 to 45 knot winds, um, dragging chains, ropes, sticking out a very, very tiny little sliver of sail to guide us and having our wind vane direct us downwind um, for about 48 hours and staying in one relative spot. It was harrowing. There was (laughs) lots of water on the boat, um, lots of dishes broke and we learned lots of lessons. Um, it was the most uh, incredible, ecstatic feeling to be able to motor into Bodega after that, that harrowing storm. And um, I remember coming in that night, Cliff's dad picked us up at the dock and we went to the house and I like laid in bed for the first time in about 40 days or so. Uh, that we had been out after leaving Juneau and sailing down the coast. And um, I, I just, like, had no emotion, I didn't really know what to feel, and Cliff turned to me and said, we don't have to keep going if you don't want to. <laughs> like, if this is not, if this is not fun, <laughs> like, we can stay in San Francisco, that's totally fine by me. And so I said, okay, check in with me in about two weeks, and we'll see how it's going. Um, our goal was to get down to Mexico, So it was kind of torn between the idea of spending the winter in San Francisco trying to find a job or getting down the Sea of Cortez and eating tacos, and that was really appealing. So so two weeks later I say, yes, let's go, let's get this boat out of here, I'm ready to uh, not be living at your parents' house anymore and to be back on our little home. So we set sail, we had a beautiful day, it was absolutely gorgeous, sunny. 15 knot winds downwind uh, and Cliff had decided that our first night stopping uh, would be at the Fairlawn Islands. And if you know anything about San Francisco, you uh, probably have heard of the Fairlawn Islands. They're about 30 miles from the Golden Gate Bridge west. Um, they're also the, uh, one of the largest areas, population, of great white sharks. Um, it's got lots of great white sharks and lots of enormous sea lions um, and it's a desolate, desolate place besides the sea lions. But um, it just looks it looks kind of horrific from the water. So we sail beautifully all day and we see these islands coming into view. Uh, I took so many pictures, it was gorgeous. We were coming in at sunset. Um, it was just gonna be a beautiful night, just our boat out in this little tiny cove. We had looked at the map, we saw the charts, and we saw that there was a mooring buoy to tie up our sailboat to. So we could tie up to this mooring buoy and just have this magical night of the Fairline Islands, which that was Cliff's, Cliff's plan. Um, so we got in and we saw right away as the sun was setting and getting darker, uh, well, the first thing we experienced was the sound, the act- like the cacophony of sea lion barking, just so loud. I couldn't even, like, sea lions everywhere just covering and the stench of their poop was just horrible. But there was no way we were going anywhere farther. We kind of contemplated uh, continuing through the night. Um, And then we really contemplated continuing through the night when we saw that the mooring buoy was a very large Coast Guard industrial metal mooring buoy that was larger than the front of our sailboat. We had no idea how we were gonna approach it. We had to get on that buoy somehow so we wouldn't just be floating. We couldn't anchor there because it was too deep and too rocky so we had to get to the mooring buoy. The light was definitely going down very fast so we felt a little stressed to get you know, our rope attached. And it was my job to go up and grab the mooring buoy. So I had my pole, my little man overboard and all all that jazz, and I was going over and reaching down and trying to grab this buoy. But the closer Cliff got, I realized very quickly that it was going to probably endanger the boat and the bow of the boat. And it did. came very close. I couldn't grab the first time, and it smacked into the bow of the boat and made the most terrible noise. (laughs) And I began to start to get overwhelmed. And so Cliff and I traded spots. And Cliff went to the front of the boat, and I went to the back and started steering. And I actually did a pretty good job because I stayed quite a bit away from it. And Cliff was able to grab it and pull the line in and be able to hook us to the mooring buoy. But uh, not before I heard even worse noise, which was the sound of the buoy hitting the side of our boat very, very, very hard and loud, and us peering over and seeing lots of scrapes and sides. But by now, it was very dark. We didn't know what was going on. We realized that we had hit an object a couple times, and I was a little terrified. So we get done. We are backing away. Our line is kind of spreading out. We're backing away from this buoy. The sea lions are barking. I'm absolutely terrified we're going to see a great white shark, or at least one eating a sea lion. And so I was really worried. And I'm sitting down in the quiet of our cabin and hear the trickling of water, which is a horrible, horrible noise to hear, especially after you've just gone through a really big storm for a couple days and I had let myself go out on the water and I was just like ready, like, yeah, we're going to sail down. Oh, no, we're not going to get any. Like the vision in my head was, us grabbing all of our things and getting onto our little life raft and rowing to shore and having to somehow sleep with all of these sea lions on shore with all of our things like all my belongings which wasn't very much but that was what i i immediately imagined that when i heard that water and then the next step was cliff and i listening and listening to where it came from so we tore apart the boat top to bottom absolutely tore the whole thing trying to find the water and we couldn't find the source and then we actually still heard it and it was getting louder and we still couldn't find the source just looking at every every crevice of the boat and then we looked into the bilge and realized that we were okay because the water wasn't rising so we weren't actually uh, gaining any water but it sounded like it and then I realized a very small small voice in the back of my head (laughs) uh, Good friend of our family, Father Thomas, reminding me before I started my sailing trip that I should listen when I sleep for little cleaner shrimp on the bottom of our boat, and that it would be a loud popping and also trickling sound. And I was sitting there completely exhausted, also crying because I thought that we were going to have to sleep with the sea lions, and then realizing that that. The boat was actually being all the algae on the bottom of our boat was being cleaned off by cleaner shrimp, and the sound source was those popping shrimp on the bottom of our boat. <laughs> and uh, and after Cliff and I realized that, we just sat down and we had a really good cry together, <laughs> and realized that we we're okay. We we're gonna live through this Fairlawn experience, and we're able to continue on and and make it much farther down to Mexico, but. Uh, it was definitely uh, one of those moments where I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen with our little boat, and I'm very happy to say that it's safely in Mexico now. So, yeah. thank you.
1: you. awkward tonight.
0: This is KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded on September 10th, 2014. The theme for the evening was On the Water. Visit mudrooms.org to tell your story. Audio production by Rich Maniac.
2: We hope you get